though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Simmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. This is just in from Dallas, Homicide Chief Captain Will Fritz said today, the assassination case against Lee Harvey Oswald is cinched. He said flatly, this is the man that killed President Kennedy. 24-year-old Lee Harvey Oswald. Welcome to the End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. I said last week that we would continue to look at mysterious deaths that surround the Kennedy assassination, and we will get back into that in a few weeks. But this week, I wanted to share my thoughts about my trip to Dallas last weekend. I went with some friends to give them a tour of the assassination site, as well as other important spots in and around Dallas that played a role in the crime of the century. We went to places that the normal assassination tours do not take you to and to places that even very few researchers talk about. It's the first time I've been back to Dallas in several years and find some of the sites I always visit being taken over by time and sometimes progress. Even though I was not born when the assassination occurred, with all the time I've spent researching it over the years, it has become personal to me. I always feel a heaviness when walking around Dealey Plaza and some of the other sites. I did notice myself taking in the crowd around me at times. One particular thing now comes to mind. While standing on the triple overpass in Dealey Plaza, where Sam Skinny Holland once stood, I watched three men position themselves along the edge of Dealey Plaza, glancing up Elm Street, trying to time the traffic. This isn't easy. Elm Street slopes downhill, and while local drivers know what to expect as they pass through the intersection at Houston Street, their cars nevertheless tend to accelerate as they approach the triple underpass near the western edge of downtown Dallas. Finally, there is a lull in the traffic, and the men sprint into the street, moving as briskly as their boots will allow them. One of them breaks off from the pack, readying his phone. The other two plant themselves on the large X that has been crudely painted in the middle lane of Elm Street. There's some debate about its accuracy. The X moves a little whenever the road is repaved, but it is always replaced each time by some mysterious source. But it supposedly marks the precise spot where President John F. Kennedy was hit by a fatal headshot on a sunny November day much like this one. 
With the faded red brick building of the former Texas School Book Depository stationed behind them, the two men position their feet on either side of the X and throw their arms around each other's shoulders. As their friend snaps away, they smile. It's a grim yet familiar scene, one that plays out many times per day here, like Dallas's own morbid version of Abbey Road. Like Abbey Road, you can even watch the spot via a live streaming webcam, stashed inside the so-called sniper's perch on the old depository sixth floor, from which the government and our history books claim Lee Harvey Oswald fired on Kennedy's motorcade as it passed by on the street below. It remains preserved behind a thick painted plexiglass as a centerpiece of the sixth floor museum, where people have been coming since 1989 to revisit one of the darkest days in American history, November 22, 1963. A lot of people once regarded this blockish, unremarkable building at 411 Elm Street as the looming manifestation of evil. When the Texas School Book Depository Company finally moved out in 1970, there were numerous calls to burn it to the ground. Some of them led by prominent Dallasites like Tom Landry, Mary Kay Ash, and Ross Perot. Instead, its owner, Ullman D. Harold Byrd, sold it to a country music producer, Aubrey Mayhew, an opportunistic Kennedy collector who hoped to turn it into a shrine to the late president. Mayhew failed to find backers or attract much more than outrage. When the bank foreclosed on the building in 1972, Byrd bought it back via an auction in which he was the only bidder. An arsonist set fire to the building that same year. It stood empty once more until 1977 when it was purchased by Dallas County and converted into administrative offices. In 1984, as plans for a museum were once ramping up, an arsonist struck again. There were many, it seemed, who simply wished it would disappear. Yet even as the former depository became a symbolic flashpoint for Dallas's anger and shame, visitors from all over the world continued to pilgrimage to Dealey Plaza. Some brought flyers and photos. Others simply just came to gawk. Their persistence and curiosity convinced the museum's champions, chiefly Dallas County Public Works Director Judson Shook and historian Conover Hunt, to spend more than 12 years fighting to save the building, convinced that the city had a responsibility to turn it into something that could confront the tragedy honestly and tastefully. Besides, as Shook remarks, tearing it down would only confirm suspicions that Dallas had something to hide. Here's a real neat video I found on YouTube that talks about plans for the future of the Texas School Book Depository building that was filmed in the early 1970s. In the video is an interview with the building's owner at the time, Harold Byrd, and a couple other interviews with Dallas City officials. The video starts as someone is walking across an empty sixth floor of the depository building. It is quite an eerie scene as all you hear are the footsteps on the old wooden floors of the depository. Any burden, meet any hardship, 
support any friend, uphold any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. I'm confident as I look to, to the future that our chances for security, our chances for peace are better than they've been in the past. And the reason is because we're stronger. And with that strength is a determination to not only maintain the peace, but also the vital interest of the United States. To that great cause, Texas and the United States are committed. I'm just walking down here today. I was familiar with the setting, seeing it on a map, seeing it in a movie, and just looking at that uh, the corner window up there, I just couldn't believe that's that's where an assassin assassin's bullet came from. It was just hard to imagine. And right down here is where it all happened. Oh, down here? Well, we wanted to see where the location where this all happened. It's the first time we've been here since it has happened. So we decided we'd, you know, being we're down here, we'd come down and look it over. How do you feel? being down here? I don't know. It's just a thing of the past now, but, you know, still think about it. And when my first trip uh, was to Dallas, uh, I stopped by, and the first thing I asked was, uh, where was the uh, president uh, shot? There are familiar sight in Dallas, the tourists wandering around Dealey Plaza and gazing up at the infamous window. The textbook depository is empty now, closed to the public. It wasn't always that way. A plow company erected the building in 1903. Its present owner, D. Harold Byrd, bought it in 1937. And in 1960, the Texas School Book Depository leased it until they relocated several years ago. A national businessman bought it in 1970 for $650,000. He planned to turn it into a private museum of Kennedy memorabilia until he ran into financial difficulty and failed to meet his monthly payments. Bird reclaimed it in 1972. The building is for sale again at an asking price of $1.2 million. There are a number of interested parties, but a combination of political and financial reasons makes the depository's future a mystery. I'm going to look pretty closely at anyone that I should sell it to. But I want to sell it. I want to get it off my hand. I don't... Uh, I wasn't known as the owner until I had it auctioned off. I would like for anyone who purchased it would use it in a way that wouldn't be a slam on Dallas. I want it to be something that would be put to the correct use without a lot of fanfare about the death of Kennedy where they blame Dallas with, with having the right environment here for it. Uh, about a year ago, a group of us here in Dallas formed a group known as Dallas Onward. The basic purpose of this group was to express our opposition to the dedication of the Texas School Book Depository as a national shrine. With the city council having passed this resolution where nothing can be done with the property, uh, we have uh, felt that there's very little we could do either in the way of raising funds or soliciting people to express their interest and uh, make a contribution toward uh, tearing down this structure. 
There are those who have other plans for the depository. Since 1969, Raymond Nasher has chaired the nine-member John F. Kennedy Memorial Commission of Texas, a group created by the legislature and appointed by the governor, whose purpose has been to develop ideas about how to memorialize the late president. The final decisions after a great deal of conversation and research is that the people want it preserved and restored. They want the exterior to remain as it is and the interior of the building to be used in some constructive form and it to be the Kennedy Memorial landmark. If purchased, uh, then we believe that uh, this should relate to a, a type of, of uh, activity that would be in keeping with, the pre with President Kennedy's interest. For example, in our considerations in the uh, John F. Kennedy Commission, we've considered, of course, child uh, care and child development centers, which he had a great interest in. We thought about cultural centers, because when the Kennedy administration you came in, you remember, it was kind of like a, a cultural uh, breath of spring. All of those things uh, could relate to a memorial to the president. We feel of first importance is designating the school book depository as the building for a permanent landmark and memorial and then secondly the development of that area in his honor and memory in some form what we decided to do in the commission is to put these resolutions in form and send a letter we're drafting a letter that i'm sending out to each of the legislators themselves and asking them to reply to us as to whether this is positive or negative as far as their concern is. And if it is positive, then we assume that they'll move forward to provide the funds in the next appropriation bill. We also are stating further that if they concur with this principle, that we will develop private resources to handle the purchase or the optioning of this building until they're able to appropriate these funds if funds are not available at this time. Ray Nasher and the commission reflect the thinking of others who feel that the depository as a museum or as a center serving the public should not be an enterprise operated commercially for profit, but instead should belong to the people of Texas. This museum is owned privately by John Sissom. It's been open to the public for three and a half years. According to Mr. Sissom, the theme of the museum is the death of a president and the reaction of the people. The walls of the lobby are lined with enlarged front pages of newspapers announcing the assassination and the events surrounding it. One section includes a variety of jewelry and books for sale. $1.50 admits an adult, 75 cents for children, to a narrated slideshow entitled The Incredible Hours, a recreation of the assassination and a brief description of the president's life. The models took 18 months to complete, and the program operates on an 82-channel computer readout system. When you leave, if you'll exit to your right, you'll go back to the lobby through an exhibit hall. In the exhibit hall after the presentation, the visitor can see police photographs, a rifle like the one found in the depository, copies of speeches, Kennedy paintings, and assorted historical documents. Mr. Sissom said that he will continue to collect significant material about the late president with the museum proceeds. Like the Kennedy Memorial Commission, the city of Dallas is also concerned about the future of the depository. Earlier this year, the city tried to get the building placed on the National Register of Historic Places. This would have entitled Dallas to federal funds to buy the depository, if the city wanted it. The State Review Board denied the request, saying the depository did not meet the criteria for designation as an historical site. 
So the city is now taking a different and broader approach. The city planning department's director for urban design, Weiming Liu, has been supervising a study which will include a future for the depository. I think we need to look at the whole area and not just the school book depository, rather than the, uh, the whole district is significant to the area and its potential. We don't have any uh, uh, specific uh, uses uh, as such. Uh, I think that it's important that for the city to discharge its uh, historic responsibility uh, properly. What you see here has become part of a meticulously detailed piece of history, preserved in millions of words and photographs and films. But the fate of the Texas School Book Depository is still undecided. Nevertheless, people from all over the world will continue to come here. What they see, what they learn, is now up to Dallas. It's been over three decades since the Sixth Form Museum opened, a longer time span than the one separating its birth from the tragedy it memorializes. Today, the controversy remains. While Dallas has moved on in some ways, many Americans have not. In 2013, D. Plaza hosted an official ceremony to mark the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination, and another will be held in two weeks to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the killing of Kennedy. Whatever repressed feelings still linger will surely be exercised then, if not way back in 1991 when Oliver Stone commandeered downtown to film JFK, restoring Dealey Plaza to its 1963 vintage so Dallas could kill the president over and over again. What was left behind is largely what the museum's founders envisioned, a dignified, borderline clinical examination of the life and murder of John F. Kennedy inside the very walls where the later was supposedly carried out. Opinions about exactly what happened vary. Out in the plaza, you can still find plenty of car tables laden with literature that will tell you a story very different than the Warren Commission's. The sixth floor is a hushed and somber place, partly due to the fact that practically every visitor is plugged into a headset, listening as former WFAA reporter and assassination witness Pierce Allman guides them along walls of photographs and large text-filled placards. Video displays and newspaper reproductions give a sense of the turmoil that colored his trip to Texas before a snaking path of steals from the infamous Zapruder film kick off near a millisecond-by-millisecond breakdown of the assassination and its aftermath. These are rendered safe for family viewing. No fatal headshots here. After all, we don't want people to know what really happened on the streets below, do we? The lingering questions of conspiracy are handled with similar detachment. Theories of CIA and mafia involvement laid out matter-of-factly on a pair of murals near the exhibit's end, finally concluding with a shrug only that the discussion continues. The layout of the museum leaves you somewhat confused, and that's the way they like it. While touring the museum for probably the tenth time over the years, I found myself wanting to stop and scream out to the hundreds of people around me that a lot of what you see up here is total bullshit. No mention up here of the fact that Oswald was seen on the second floor seconds before and in the exact same spot seconds after the assassination. No mention of Mac Wallace, LBJ's hitman's fingerprints being found on boxes on the sixth floor after the assassination. No mention of figures like Lee Bowers, Ed Hoffman, Gordon Arnold who possibly saw the real shooter on the grassy knoll. 
and no mention of Ralph Leon Yates, who very well saw and gave a ride to the man that was hanging around Dallas weeks before the assassination, impersonating Lee Harvey Oswald. These kinds of things are not in our history books, and our government-funded agency like the Sixth Floor Museum would rather everyday people not know about these figures. There's very little in the way of actual artifacts in the museum. Anything of genuine interest was locked away inside the National Archives long ago. You will find Jack Ruby's gray fedora right next to the tan suit, cowboy hat, and handcuffs that belonged to the late Jim Lavelle, the detective who was escorting Oswald on the day Ruby shot him. Around the corner is the camera that the Dallas Times Herald's Bob Jackson used to capture Oswald's murder for his Pulitzer-winning photograph. Nearby is another row of cameras, acquired from various De Plaza eyewitnesses, each paired with the pictures they took. But no doubt the most famous camera of all, Abraham's Zapruder's, is represented by a copy. There's something surreal about this as in the fact that one of the museum's main attractions is the large-scale model of Dealey Plaza that was used by the Warren Commission, a replica of the very place you're standing in. Even the sniper's perch is a recreation. The space it occupies is real, as are the scuffs visible on the original floorboards, but both it and the corner staircase, where the now-infamous Mamaco Carcano rifle was discovered, are staged with cardboard boxes standing in for the ones that were taken away decades ago by the FBI. The infamous window where Oswald is said to have fired that rival is just a facsimile, the original having been carved from the wall at some point during the building's long dormancy. Its neighboring windows overlooking the plaza have all been fitted with interactive touchscreens on which CGI models of the motorcade amble down Elm Street in an endless loop. In this, Kennedy is reduced to pleasantly featureless avatars. On the headset, Allman explains that these things have been painstakingly arranged so that visitors can make a powerful connection with this building and its history, but doing so requires breaking through several layers of BS. In many ways, the museum suits a man who was shrouded in myth in life, and in death even more so. Many Americans saw his assassination and the mystery that surrounded it as sort of a line in the sand that saw mistrust in their government grow with each passing year. That suspicion has since echoed across hundreds of books, films, Broadway musicals, and internet rabbit holes. The justified paranoia it created is woven into the fabric of American life. I'm as guilty as anyone of buying into the mess. I was a JFK assassination buff from an early age, a fascination that began with a sixth grade report on the Warren Commission. I spent much of my adolescence thereafter carrying around books like Rush to Judgment, Six Seconds in Dallas, and Forgive My Grief, becoming intimately familiar with the assassination characters like the Umbrella Man and the Babushka Lady. The Warren Commission's conclusions seemed foolish to me then, and remain that way today, especially after researching the event for the last 35 years. Some years later in 1988, while stationed in Wichita Falls, Texas with the United States Air Force, I took a weekend and hunted down JFK pioneer researcher Penn Jones in Mithilonian, Texas. He was so kind and spoke to me for hours and showed me a lot of his research materials. That day changed my life. In later years, I had the pleasure to meet and spend a lot of time with JFK assassination heroes like Robert Groden, Jack White, and Jim Mars, whose 1989 book Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, would become a partial basis for Oliver Stone's film JFK. Over the years, I've had the pleasure to meet and interview hundreds of witnesses to that awful day in Dallas. 
Looking back now, it's easy to see how closely my dark enthusiasm dovetailed with the timeless teenage rite of passage of deciding that most everything we were told about the killing of Kennedy is total bullshit. In signing my copy of Crossfire, Mars wrote, quote, always question authority, end quote. Probably a stock line for him, though it felt to me like a mandate handed down from one researcher to another. Of course, the fact that Dealey Plaza was only four hours from my hometown played a major role in fostering my ghoulish pastime. My family took many vacations in and around the Dallas area. On our way back home from Dallas, I always got a thrill passing the old depository building, instinctively glancing up to that permanently half-open window, then quickly over to the grassy knoll, as though the mystery would reveal itself to me if only I looked hard or often enough. But sometimes over the years, the place had ceased to be real to me, transformed through Stone's intoxicating film and X-Files folklore into something more akin to a movie set. Even revisiting the museum today, as my GPS instructs me to turn from Houston onto Elm, my brain still fills in the rest with bits of Kevin Costner's climatic courtroom monologue in JFK. Quote, it's going to be a turkey shoot, end quote. Returning to the museum now, I intended to reckon with the fact that I once treated a man's gruesome death as something like a hobby, and Dealey Plaza like my own personal Universal Studios. With its CGI recreations and webcam, the virtual reality aspect of it all felt even more pronounced. At the museum's cafe across the street, I found tourists eating ice cream cones beneath a sideshow of Oswald's arrest. In the attached gift shop, you can get a signed print of Jackson's infamous photo of Ruby shooting Oswald for $250, one of the pricier items from a bounty of merchandise that includes Texas Schoolbook depository-shaped keychains and refrigerator magnets. Here, as it has everywhere, the JFK assassination has grown as an industry. Even the conspiracy theories have become something of a lifestyle, evidenced in the messages from believers I found scrawled and scribbled in the museum's memory books. The sixth floor isn't to blame for this, of course, any more than the city of Dallas is for Kennedy's death. I did find myself saying to someone that since the government in the sixth floor museum believes that Oswald shot the president from this building alone, shouldn't his kids get a little piece of all this money being made off their father here every day? On the day I visited, the museum is packed with people of all ages and nationalities. High schoolers on field trips, European tourists, a couple of zombified parents pushing strollers. They continue to be drawn here to learn not only about Kennedy's death, but his legacy. And in those same guest books, next to the ones who scribbled The Mob Did It, you'll find earnest testimonials in looping cursive from kids who seem to have just now discovered Kennedy's role in the space race and the civil rights movement. In this, the museum has clearly succeeded in its goal of crafting a memorial to a man, not his murderer. Visiting here again after so many years away, I found myself wondering how it and I, once upon a time, might have benefited from it remaining dusty and abandoned, allowing you to confront just how scarily ordinary it must have been for an assassin, notice I didn't say Oswald, to fire a gun out of these windows and topple a kingdom. But perhaps we can only comprehend the mist this way, through layers of plexiglass and X's in the street. It's truly history now, with all the comfort the distance of time allows. Just before I head to the exit, I watch a man posing by the sealed-off corner staircase, positioning himself just so next to the replica of the rifle believed to have altered America forever. As his wife readies the camera, the man points to it and smiles. What else is he supposed to do? 
He leaves the museum with his head spinning and with the words of Joe Pesci from the movie JFK ringing in his head. The assassination is a mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma. Just the way they want you to leave this place. This November 22nd marks the 60th year. This November 22nd marks the 60th anniversary of President Kennedy's assassination. Over the next few episodes, we'll be talking about the ways in which the assassination's effects are still felt throughout the government and society, and how the assassination of John F. Kennedy changed the lives of every American living today, even if they don't even realize it. We'll see you next week.